Well, good morning, uh, Faith Church. Is my mic on? All right, very good. Well, it's been a uh, privilege to be up here the last couple weeks, and I'm excited for this morning as well. Uh, it's been good to get to know you all and uh, to hear a little of what God is doing in and through this local church. Uh, and it was a privilege this morning um, to hear what God is doing in some tangible ministries uh, in this community. Uh, things like Celebrate Recovery, Safe Families, uh, that really uh, excites me to hear of your passion for tangible ministry in Jesus' name. Uh, it's one of the things that I see in, uh, as I travel around New England. You know, we live in an area of the country that's usually called a post-Christian area, um, where many people think they have heard the gospel, uh, whether they have or not, that maybe remains to be seen, but at least they have a character of what the church is and what Jesus is, and they've rejected that character. And so often in that posture, it's not the words that penetrate a hardened heart, it's the deeds. And when a church steps up into these needed places in the life of a community, uh, it's unmistakable that there is love there, that there is the work of a supernatural God taking place to transform lives, and it really paves the opportunity for a hearing for the gospel. And so I'm really excited to hear how you guys are pressing into the hard places in the community. Uh, my predecessor, Vesh Shealy, the superintendent, he used to say, the harvest is in the margins. And I love that phrase. It's often in the margins of society where we see people recognize their need for a savior and we see God working the most. And so uh, way to go that you are really pressing into the hard places. Um, the last three weeks, we've been looking at First uh, Corinthians chapters 1 through 3. And we've been considering this question, uh, what unifies a church during pastoral transition? Uh, the church in Corinth, uh, they were facing some issues of division. And one of the reasons that they had uh, experienced division was because of the differing leaders that God had used over uh, their church history. And those leaders were not in opposition with one another. It was more people's um, connection with the different leaders. There was Paul. There was Apollos, there was Peter, and as a result, people had had a, a, a perspective of what leadership should look like based on the leader they preferred. And so we've been looking at um, how to navigate that very human issue of there being different leaders that we connect with. Uh, the very first week, we considered the foundation of our unity, which is found in the message of the cross, the word of the cross. That the cross and the cross alone is what calls us together. Now, the first week I was here, I actually noticed on the sign out front uh, a great phrase. I think it's actually by Tim Keller, who originally said it. And that is that uh, the, the cross tells us that we are worse off than we think. Our sin is worse than we think. And the cross tells us that. That someone had to die because of our sin. And we are all united in that problem. So the cross unifies us in the problem, but we're also more loved than we ever dare hope. Someone was willing to die for us in our sin, and God loves us all and has paid that price. So the cross unifies us in our need of a Savior and in God's solution, and then the cross also begins to unify us in that it forms our character, that we take on Jesus' pattern of life, beginning to die to our sin and live for God's glory and others' good, we're taking up our cross and following Jesus. So the cross is the foundation. Then last week we considered uh, the issue of uh, God's perspective on leadership in his local church. 
we want, we want to have a common understanding of what the church is all about and God's role for leaders in his local church. That leaders are not saviors, they are servants used by God for his purposes. And so we considered that last week. Now today we're going to close up um, with uh, an issue that Paul actually talks a lot about in 1 Corinthians. And that is that one of the issues that we need to understand if we are going to have unity is the role of God's wisdom. Not the world's wisdom, God's wisdom. God's wisdom brings unity in his church. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And uh, our main text will be chapter 3, verses 18 uh, through 23, though we will take a few minutes to work our way towards there, all right? 1 Corinthians 3, 18 through 23. Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Sorry, I backed up a little to give you that preface. Now, verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize this morning uh, that at the center of our universe, there's a throne. And on that throne uh, sits a lamb who was slain from the foundations of the world. And in this lamb is all the wisdom of God available for us. So God, I pray this morning uh, that by your word and by your spirit, uh, you be pleased to speak to your church. I pray that you would help us to understand uh, your purposes, uh, not just in general, but your specific purposes for this church. For we believe that you are a God who leads your people. So God, I thank you today that you are not silent and that you lead us by your spirit, by your word. Give us ears to hear this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, In chapters 1 through 3, Paul talks about wisdom a lot. Uh, Fifteen times in the first three chapters, he uses the word wisdom or wise. And then even beyond that, he uses the phrase uh, having the mind of Christ or knowing the right judgments of God, all phrases referring to God's understanding being given to us. Now, he wants the Corinthian church to be unified by receiving the wisdom of God. But there's a problem here, and it's why he's talking so much about wisdom. The Corinthian church has confused worldly wisdom for godly wisdom. And there is all the difference in the world between those two things. See, worldly wisdom brings division. Godly wisdom brings unity. Worldly wisdom is about status and knowledge. You're on the honor roll, I'm not. And so inherently, there's a, someone has it, someone does not. Godly wisdom is very different. 
And so I want to press into this this morning so that we understand, like Paul wanted the Corinthian church to understand, uh, what godly wisdom is. So here's our outline for the morning, pretty basic. We're going to ask, uh, what is God's wisdom? Why is God's wisdom so important, especially to unity? And then thirdly, how can we get God's wisdom? So what is it? Why is it important? And how can we get it? First question, what is God's wisdom? What is it? Well, let me first by start, start by saying what it's not. God's wisdom is not the same thing as knowledge. God's wisdom is not the same thing as knowledge, information. Now, the Corinthian church had a lot of knowledge. Um, they were very uh, cultured. Um, not all of them were highly educated, but still they lived in a culture of education. And uh, listen to what Paul says uh, to the church at the beginning of his letter. In chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, listen how he praises the church. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. The Corinthian church had been enriched by God in all knowledge. They had a lot of knowledge. Now remember the, the teachers that had come through, Paul, Apollos, Peter, uh, these are no slouches, all right? They've been given great Bible teaching. They had lots of Bible knowledge. Now, we can gain lo- knowledge in lots of ways. Um, some of you may be uh, prolific readers. Reading is a great way to gain knowledge. Others of you may not be. Uh, maybe it's the school of hard knocks. That's another way to get knowledge, to go through experience. Uh, maybe it's schooling. Uh, maybe it is uh, documentaries. I and mean, there's lots of ways that knowledge comes to us. And I don't want to discount that. Knowledge is good and even needed. But knowledge is not the same thing as wisdom. For I'm sure you know people like I do who have lots and lots of knowledge but have made a mess of their lives. You can have a lot of knowledge and still ruin your life and others' lives. Wisdom is not the same thing as knowledge. And you can even have a lot of biblical knowledge and still make a mess of things. The second thing that wisdom is not, wisdom is not knowledge, and wisdom is not the same thing as moral goodness. Wisdom is not the same thing as moral goodness. See, moral goodness is about knowing the rules, that you know right from wrong. You know what God says to do and what he says not to do. So you could know uh, all those things and still not necessarily have wisdom. Now, wisdom is not less than moral goodness. If you don't know moral goodness, you're not going to have wisdom. Paul actually addresses a lot of issues of morality in his letter. The Corinthian church had adopted the sexual ethic of their surrounding culture, and he really takes them to task for this, that their morality was poor in this area, not formed by the scriptures. Um. But that's not the same thing as wisdom. You see, the third thing I want to identify here is that wisdom is knowing what to do when you don't necessarily have a rule. Wisdom is knowing what to do when there's not a clear black and white. Like, uh, should I go to college? And if so, where? You're not going to find a chapter and verse for that. Who, who should I marry? Now, you're going to find some guidance there. You're going to find you should marry uh, someone who is a Christian, so you can be unified in your faith journey, has godly character. But there's a lot of people that could fall into that category for you. 
So who should I marry? Enter wisdom. Or, or try this one on. Our pastor just retired. Who should we call as our next pastor? Enter wisdom. That you're not going to find a name in the scriptures. What you're going to find is God directing his church. That God is not silent about this. He gives wisdom to his church for those very kind of questions. So wisdom is knowing what to do when we don't necessarily have a rule. Well, if that's what wisdom is, why is God's wisdom so important, especially to unity? Let me give you three reasons uh, why wisdom is so important to our unity in the church. Firstly, God's wisdom is how we're saved in the first place. None of us could be part of God's family. None of us could be rescued from our sin, forgiven, uh, uh, given Christ's righteousness, and brought into God's family apart from God's wisdom. And Paul points this out in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verse 21. 1 Corinthians 1, 21. Paul writes that, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. That means human wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Paul says, um, none of you thought your way into salvation. None of you were smart enough to figure out salvation. That none of you knew the message. The, the message, the wisdom, the gospel of God came to you and you believed. Now, um, Jesus says the same kind of thing to Peter. When Peter first recognizes and vocalizes that Jesus is the Messiah, the one sent from God for our salvation. And after Peter first says this, that you are the Christ, the Son of God, Jesus says this back to him in Matthew 16, verse 17. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He says, Simon, Peter, you didn't figure this out. You weren't brighter than everyone else. God opened your eyes so you could see who I truly am. And God does this for each and every one of us. None of us can boast or be proud because we have become Christians. That God has given us his understanding so we know who Jesus is. We recognize our need for a Savior. And then we can trust in this Savior. You see, what this does is it produces humility. Worldly wisdom produces arrogance. It always does. If you have more knowledge, you feel like, why can't the other people figure it out? And we see this in our world all the time. What's wrong with that other political party or with this other group? Why can't they figure it out? Godly wisdom makes us humble because none of us have figured it out. God came to us. Now, it's been said that the gospel is shallow enough for a toddler to wade in and deep enough for a theologian to drown in. I don't care how great or how little your intellect is. The gospel can come to you. You can understand the gospel because God's wisdom comes to all of us. And so we have no reason to boast that we are smart and have figured out the mysteries of God. We haven't. God's come to us with his wisdom. So wisdom is, first of all, important for our unity because it's the starting point. God's wisdom has come to us, though we have not been smart enough to bring ourselves to God. Secondly, God's wisdom is how we grow to become like Jesus. 
And if we're going to have unity in the church, we need to become more like Jesus. This was his prayer for the church in John 17. I mean, before he goes to the cross, he prays, Father, may they be one as we are one, so that the world may know that, I ha- that you have sent me and that you love them even as you love me. Amazing prayer. So God's will for us is to be unified. And we need to become like Jesus to live unified. So uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, Paul is pointing out this truth that wisdom helps us grow. He says, yet among the mature... We do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Now, there's kind of a chicken and egg thing going on here where he says, uh, how do you get wisdom? Well, it comes to those who are mature. Well, how do you become mature? You need God's wisdom. And this is how it works in God's kingdom. There's often these paradoxes that God comes to us with his wisdom. And for those who humbly receive it, more is given. So it's not that we were smart enough to figure it out. We we receive and apply and God gives more. This is maturity. God giving us more of his wisdom. We understand more of who he is, what his purposes are for our lives, what his purposes are for his church, what his purposes are for the world. And so more wisdom is given as we receive and submit our lives to it. Uh, Paul counsels the church in Philippi, in Philippians 2.5. He has a similar thing to say, where he says, Have this mind among yourselves, listen to this, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Isn't that great? He doesn't say, like, you know, go out and get an advanced degree. He's saying, you already have this available. Like, this is yours in Christ Jesus, that you can have the mind of Christ, the wisdom of God, his way of thinking, his way of understanding life and the world. And then he goes on in Philippians 2 to describe this mind. He said that Jesus humbled himself and became a servant, even to the point of death. And therefore, God exalted him. And so we had this pattern of life, that those who have the mind of Christ consider themselves to be servants, and they serve others. And God exalts them. Very different than the pattern of life in our world, where we exalt ourselves and want others to serve us. And so Paul wants us to grow in Jesus, to have the mind of Christ, and to serve even as we have been served. We we will not do that apart from God's wisdom forming our lives. The third reason that wisdom is so important for unity is that God's wisdom is how we discern what God wants us to do what God wants us to do. Now, one of my favorite verses is uh, Colossians, in Colossians 2, verse 6, I believe, where it says, uh, As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. As you have received him as Lord, so walk in him. The point being, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, that's not the end. That's the very beginning. Now there's a whole life of walking, of playing follow the leader, of saying, where are you going, Jesus? I want to go in that direction. And that's true of us individually and corporately. Now, to follow Jesus, we need guidance, wisdom. What's God doing right now in our church, in my job, in my family? What's he doing? Therefore, I can join him in what he's doing. Now, thankfully, God has not left us to figure this out by ourselves. He's given us the Holy Spirit. Now, before Jesus died... 
he told his disciples, it's better for you that I go away. And they scratched their heads, as I do. I mean, I would love to have seen Jesus perform miracles. I would have loved to sat right there listening to his teaching. Uh, I'd love to feel the warmth of his presence. And one day I will. I, I look forward to that day. But Jesus says, it's better for you that I go away. And why he said that is because if he didn't go away, if he didn't die, rise, and ascend, then the Spirit would not be sent to us. But because his Spirit has been sent to us, we can have the mind of Christ. That God can be giving us his understanding so that in all our lives we can be directed by Jesus. See, the disciples could only be directed by him when they were physically with him. Now, every follower of Jesus across the globe at the same time can have the mind of Jesus with them, comforting, guiding, leading. So God wants to give us his wisdom by the Spirit. And we see him do this again and again, uh, especially in Acts. Acts is a great book for seeing how Jesus leads his church. Uh, the title is Acts of the Apostles. It probably should have been called the Acts of the Holy Spirit because it's all about how the Holy Spirit is directing the church. Let me give you a couple snapshots. Uh, Acts 13, verses 2 through 3, we have a snapshot into the church in Antioch. Now, Antioch is a town um, north of, of uh, Israel, and uh, the church in Israel had become persecuted. And as a result, they fled. And some of the Christians went to Antioch, and God was moving powerfully in that city. People were coming to Christ left and right. We see the church growing. Um, we see a great group of leaders that were drawn into the church. One of them was this young whippersnapper named Paul. This is the first place that Paul served. So Paul and Barnabas are in this church as young leaders. And listen to what it says about this church here. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. I think this is so cool. It's not just that Paul and Barnabas got together and had a good idea, and then came and pitched it to the church. Hey, I think God wants to use us to go plant churches around the Mediterranean area. You know, will you send us? No, God gave the whole church this sense of what he wanted them to do. God spoke to the church. Uh, we don't get the exact sense of how exactly, but there was a collective sense of God's will. Now, this was a, a hard decision for them. Paul and Barnabas were two of their best leaders. And there was a lot of work there to do in Antioch. But they sensed, you know what? As much as we would love for them to stay here, God is calling them to go. And we're going to obey God. So the church sensed the call of God and sent Paul and Barnabas. And the church, most of the scriptures are the result. That all the churches were planted as a result of Antioch sending Paul and Barnabas into the mission field. The Holy Spirit guiding the church, giving them wisdom from God. Another quick snapshot for you, Acts 15. Two chapters later, we see the church is dealing with a, uh, an issue. Um, the church at first was largely made up of Jewish people who were following the Mosaic law. As the gospel began to go to Gentiles, people, they were not living by the Jewish law. And the big question arose, do the new Gentile Christians still need to follow the, law, the laws in the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law? And they formed a council in Jerusalem to talk about and decide this very important matter. And 
they talked, they prayed, they discussed, and here was the result, Acts 15, 25 through 28. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, there's unity, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. And they go on to describe uh, their answer to the problem. But it was not an answer that they thought their way through, that they did a bunch of research on. They prayed, and together they sensed this is what God wants for his church. Wisdom, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. There's a sense, a collective understanding of what God wanted for his church. One more passage to give you an illustration of how this works out. Romans 12, 2, very famous passage. Paul writes, do not be conformed to this world, to this way of thinking in this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul says there's, there's two ways here to live. Either we are going to be conformed to the way of worldly thinking. And usually we don't even know we're being conformed. It's just the air we breathe because of the culture we live in, values that we take in. Either we are conformed to the way of worldly thinking or we are transformed by the renewing of our mind, that God gives us a new way of thinking. God's wisdom comes in and helps us to know what is good and pleasing and acceptable. We know what God's will is. Isn't that awesome? That God says, you can know my will. We cannot know his will if we are conformed to the world. But we can as we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. So the wisdom of God is essential to the unity, to the unity in the church. Essential. Which begs the question, how can we get it? If it's that important, how can we have God's wisdom? So I know I took a long time getting here, all right? But we're going to now answer three ways that we can get the wisdom of God. And Paul lays this out for us in verses 18 through 23. The first thing he says in verse 18, he says, Let no one deceive himself. Let no one deceive himself. Now, let's just pause and recognize that Paul has to say, Let no one deceive himself. You know why he says it? Because we all deceive ourselves. It's part of human nature that we all think we know what is right and good. This is what sin is. The very first sin is Eve looking at the fruit, and it, what does it say? It looked good to her eye. She thought, this is good, when it was not. She was wrong about the fruit. And all of us in life are wrong in areas and don't even know it. We think things in life are right and good that God says are not. And so here's the first principle. To gain God's wisdom, we must first distrust our own understanding. To gain God's wisdom, we must distrust our own sense of what is right and good in life. Now this theme goes all throughout the scriptures, that God um, exalts the humble. Um, Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 6, great passage. Uh, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, 
Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Isn't that a great line there? Do not lean on your own understanding. You lean against something you trust. You're tired. You're looking for support. You lean against it. And the, and the author is saying, our own understanding can't hold you, can't hold you up. Our, our own understanding is flimsy. It falls down. Trust in the Lord, not your own understanding of what is right and good in life. See, here's the principle. It is wise to distrust our own wisdom. It is wise to realize we're not wise. And there's two reasons why we are not wise. First of all, we are all created beings, not the creator. Right? Not one of us put ourselves together in our mother's womb. Not one of us thought out, here's how I'm going to be formed, the color of my hair or the lack thereof. Uh, all of us, none of us did that, right? God, in his sovereignty, put us together. Now, if God is the creator of not just us, but the whole universe, might he not know how life works best? Might he not have a better understanding of what is right and good? Uh, you as parents probably know this. Sorry, sorry, kids, I don't mean to pick on you here, but this is a good parenting illustration. I remember playing tennis with my son when he was 13. First time playing tennis. I was teaching him. He got so angry because he couldn't beat me in the first game. I've been playing tennis my whole life. And I thought, why does he think he should be able to beat me in the first game? You know, being a dad, I was not taking it easy on him either. But um, I thought, this is so foolish to think that you should be able to have that kind of skill immediately. And it's so much greater when we think about us and the creator. Like, why should we begin to think that we know what's best in life when we don't even begin to know how the world is put together? I love when God talks to Job in the Old Testament. I mean, Job is questioning, God, why is life happening the way it is? Why are you, if you're in control, what's going on here? And God says back to him, where were you when the earth was created? <laughs> where were you? And Job says, oh, that's right. I'm creation. There are things that you understand that I do not. And it's a good place to be, to be before a sovereign God and humbly receive from him wisdom. So first reason... Um, you know, why we should distrust our own understanding is we're we are created beings, not creator. But the second reason is that we are not just created beings, we are sinful created beings. We are sinful created beings. And there's lots of metaphors that the Bible uses for us being sinful. It talks about us being flawed, uh, corrupted, lost, darkened in our understanding. So because we have chosen to sin, and chosen for ourselves, to decide for ourselves what is right and good, we can't just like back out of that. Our thinking has become darkened. And so our understanding of what is right and good is fundamentally flawed. And one of the most prevalent ways we see that right now in our culture is, what, is a value that is so common, we rarely even recognize it. It's called many things, I'll for today call it expressive individualism. That in our culture, we think that the, the highest height of freedom is to be free to decide for myself how to live. That I can decide for myself what is right and good, and we call that freedom. It's like a fish swimming along the water who says to himself, I am not free in this water. Those people on the beach look like they're having a lot more fun. 
I want to be out there. Well, if the fish hops out of the water, he sure is free of the water to his death, right? Real freedom for a fish is being in the water. There's boundaries there, but there is freedom there. Real freedom for us is not the freedom to decide what is right and what is good. The freedom is to live under the rule of God, free under God's rule, free to live life as it's meant to be lived. But that thought is so pervasive that freedom is me deciding for myself how I want to live, and it's actual slavery. We are created beings. We are sinful beings. Therefore, we should distrust our own sense of what is right and what is good. Um, as you consider where God is leading your church in the season ahead, one of the best thoughts that you could have at the outset is that my thought about what is best for this church might be wrong, because it might be. My thought about what is best for the future of this church might be wrong. And if everyone begins with that place of humility, we're able to receive wisdom that we lack. And so we begin from a posture of saying, I'm not sure what is right here, God. Please help. Please help. So first, we distrust our own sense of what is right. Secondly, we distrust the culture's sense of what is right and good. Paul says um, in uh, verse uh, 18 again, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Funny statement there. Let him become a fool. He's saying uh, not that we should um, never try to learn anything, that we should uh, forsake all knowledge. What he's saying is, by the world's standards, you might seem like a fool if you're going to follow God's wisdom. You might seem like a fool by world standards if you're going to choose God's path. And so we need to distrust not just ourselves, but the culture around us. Um, now, Paul gives a second phrase here where he gets more specific about some of the foolishness in their culture. He says specifically, don't boast in men. Don't boast in men. This was one of their cultural um, values, one of the things that they thought were wise. I have referenced the previous two weeks some of the culture in Corinth. They loved um, the latest performers. They were a very sophisticated society. They had a huge amphitheater in town, and the latest speakers would come through and speak to huge crowds. And so they were all about great speakers who could draw a crowd and entertain them. And so they thought leadership was all about a polished leader who could draw a big crowd. Now, that could be a facet or a skill God could use, but that's not the heart of Christian leadership. And Paul is saying, if you are boasting in men, then you have a fundamentally flawed value for how the church should operate. Now, um, Psalm 146, verses 3 through 5, gives us some great counsel on this principle. It says, do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground, and on that very day their plans come to nothing. Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. The psalmist says, don't put your trust in princes, in human leaders. Why? They can't save, and they're going to die, and their plans will come to nothing. <laughs> 
They're going, they, they can't save you. Not one human leader died on a cross for you. Um, they will die themselves. And ultimately, um, their plans, if they're not God's plans, will come to nothing. So he says, do not put your trust in princes. And we are always tempted to do this, whether it is an athlete or a performer or a politician or a pastor. We are tempted to put our trust in human beings. See, boasting in men is a foolish, worldly way of thinking and living. Because we, as Christians, find our security in one man, a man who died for us, and who, did, and who was risen for us, and who was ascended to the right hand of the Father on high, and from there he rules and reigns now. So why would we ever trust in someone who's supposed to point us to him? So our trust is in Jesus Christ, and we belong to him not to a human leader. So Paul is reminding them that that cultural value of an overestimation of worldly leaders is foolish. And then he moves to the last um, point here, ways that, way that we can gain wisdom. And it's an odd one. I wrestled with this all week. In uh, verse 21, he says, so let no one boast in men. We just talked about that. But then he gives the reason. He says, for all things are yours. Don't boast in men, for all things are yours. Our third principle here is that to gain God's wisdom, we must know how secure we are in Christ. To gain God's wisdom, we must know all things are ours in Christ. You know, I think that most bad decisions are made out of fear. Most bad decisions are made because we don't realize all things are ours. We live our lives with a profound sense of lack. We see the money we lack, maybe the approval we lack, the intimacy we lack, and we're always trying to make decisions to gain what we feel we lack. Now, Psalm 23.1 says something that just cuts through all of that. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. Yahweh is my shepherd. I shall not want. I lack nothing. If, if, if I have God, if he is my shepherd, if he is guiding my life, then it may look like I lack, but that's a lie. The truth is, I have everything I could possibly need in the one who died for me, in the one who rose for me, in the one who is guiding my life now. So Paul is telling the Corinthian church that they are more secure than they can imagine. And he lists a number of ways. He says, uh, Paul, Apollos, Peter, they're yours. Not, you don't belong to them. They belong to you. Meaning, you don't have to divide over this. I mean, God's giving them to you in the church. They're yours. He says, the world is yours. You, you think you're scratching to get by? <laughs> the world is yours. Life is yours. Death is yours. The present, the future. How can he say these over-the-top things? Well, it's because of what he says next. Verse 23, and you are Christ. They're yours because of who you belong to. They're not ours because we have earned them, because we have worked for them, because we deserve them. Those all belong to Jesus. Jesus is the creator of everything. It rightfully belongs to him. 
He is the redeemer of everything. He has reconciled it all to himself by the means of his blood on the cross. This all belongs to Jesus. But the scriptures tell us that he has made us co-heirs with him. That we share in all that belongs to Jesus. And so as we go through life making decisions, it's like we're forgetting that. We're squabbling for the scraps when all is ours in Christ. We need eyes to see it. We need eyes to see it. Can you see what a difference this makes in our decision making? If we are making decisions out of a sense of God's sufficiency versus our own sense of lack. So God wants us in the church not to be making decisions out of fear that things will fall apart, that the wheels will come off but out of a sense of contentment and peace that we belong to Christ. He has defeated even the grave. And if he, if he did that, can't he certainly take care of his church? And so we put our faith in him and in his power to keep his church. So in the days ahead, you have a lot of question marks in the future. And that's true. There are a lot of question marks. But what will happen here in your leadership and where God is leading you as a church? They're not question marks to Jesus, though. So here's my final encouragement to you. First of all, don't trust in your own sense of what is right and wrong. There will be differences of opinion about how this church should be led, about the direction it should go. It's okay. And actually, it's even good that there are differences of opinion. So often those differences hone and shape and refine. And and as people are committed to one another in unity over time, you get a greater clarity and sense of where God is leading. So don't be bothered if there is a sense of difference of opinion, but do not allow Satan to cause division based on that. Secondly, don't put your trust in human leaders. No past leader, no present leader, no future leader died for this church. Jesus and Jesus alone is worthy of your trust. So lastly, trust in him. Trust in Jesus. Make it your aim to walk with him. And here's the great secret. This would have been a sermon in and of itself. Paul told us, told us earlier in chapter 1 that Jesus is himself the wisdom of God. So that wisdom is not just a concept. Wisdom is a person. And that person is leading this church. Will you stand with me? And we'll close the prayer. Lord, what a, what a privilege it is to call out to you in prayer now. We're not just uh, making uh, nice words into the air. Uh, we get to talk to the creator and the savior of our souls. And Lord, we thank you that you know all things. You are omniscient, you are omnipresent, and you are all powerful. And so we call out to you now, Lord, uh, asking you for your wisdom for this church. And we thank you that We know you're not begrudging. You want to give your wisdom. So, Lord, I pray that you'd you'd help this church to discern the direction that you are leading. I pray that you would also protect this church from the evil one, from his schemes. We know he's a, a deceiver. He's a liar. He seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. But, God, you are so much greater. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. So, God, I pray that you would protect this church and keep this church in your name. And God, I pray that you would use this church greatly. I pray this would not just be a season of transition, but God, you would use this season for great growth and great ministry. 
So God, please continue to build up and refine your church here in Waterville, we pray. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. God's best to you all.